To all supernatural scrutineers and paranormal postulants, I bid you welcome. You are about to listen to the Occultaria of Albion audio tales. What is the Occultaria of Albion, you inquire? Is it a hauntological exploration of strange phenomena? Is it a world where the abnormal and arcane exist in abundance? The answer to these questions is yes and yes. Explore our publications and other material by going to occultariaofalbion.com. Now, lie back and relax, if you can. Train. 1907 had been a rather good year for Horatio Griffiths. An old acquaintance from Luxor had proffered him a trove of items thought to have been depredated from a hitherto untouched tomb located toward the eastern boundary of the Valley of the Kings. Griffiths, a dealer of antiquarian items to both private collectors and museums, had eagerly snapped up the hoard and within weeks much of it had been dispersed to rather dismal museums in Shanghai, St. Louis and Yokohama. A quick turnaround was how he liked to do business. Most establishments and individuals of any prestige pointedly refused to have anything to do with an antiquarian of Horatio Griffiths' reputation. This more than suited Griffiths. In his dubious world, paperwork was less scrupulously examined than in the more distinguished institutions, and altogether far fewer questions were asked. As was usual, this Egyptian hoard had included one or two trinkets he thought would make marvellous additions to his own private collection. In particular, a golden snake pendant with a seductive eye of jade. The scales of the curled creature were inset with dark gemstones and polished ebony, and the whole piece was both mesmerising and eerie all at once. Horatio Griffiths knew his wife would adore it. He was correct. Harriet Griffiths received the pendant from her husband on Christmas morning and gasped as soon as she saw it. I think it is the most fascinating thing you have ever given me, my love. She kissed Horatio and turned her back to him so that he could fasten the pendant about her neck. The golden snake felt fiendishly cold as it touched her breast but she smiled. Louisa will be so envious. Already she was thinking of the following day when she would take the train to Whitley Holt and visit her older sister. Horatio did not accompany his wife on the journey to her sister's. He had business to attend to in Sheffield and was to join Harriet on the 28th. He held her close and kissed her goodbye on the platform, then waved at her in her first-class compartment until the carriages began to pull away into the swirling dark of a December evening. He never saw her again. The scandal sheets covered the mysterious death of Harriet Griffiths in colourful, some said extravagant detail, 
though none of the descriptions were an accurate synopsis of the facts. The Daily Gazette reported that Mrs Griffiths was travelling in a state of agitation due to an argument with her husband, but nothing could have been further from the truth. Harriet had enjoyed the seasonal holiday with her husband and was looking forward to seeing her sister and showing off the pendant she had received. Most of her journey was spent in calm and contented repose. Here are the facts as far as they could be ascertained. Harriet travelled alone in her compartment for most of the journey. At Nether Grinley, an elderly spinster by the name of Anne Whitlock joined her and was the only witness to the events which followed. Just like Mrs Griffiths, she too was bound for the line's end at Whitley Holt. It was at some point between Nether Grinley and Whitley Holt, a journey time of around 40 minutes, that the terrible events took place. Harriet Griffiths began to complain that she felt uncomfortably hot, though Miss Whitlock recalled no obvious change in the compartment's temperature. The older lady tried to reassure and calm her travelling companion when, suddenly, according to Miss Whitlock's testimony, a dark and menacing green light filled the compartment and the noise of the train itself appeared to fade away. It was then that Mrs Griffiths, as if in a delirium, tore away at her coat and dress to reveal the snake pendant around her neck. Both women screamed in terror as the snake began to move and dance across the breast of Harriet Griffiths. Unearthly sounds reverberated through the compartment. Miss Whitlock believed there was a voice within this strange music, a voice which Harriet Griffiths heard also. Mrs Griffiths began to cry and demanded the noise stop. Miss Whitlock later told police that she thought the voice was repeating the single word, slaughter, over and over again. Slaughter, slaughter, slaughter. This fantastic episode reached its climax when the snake pendant appeared to swell and grow. The creature coiled about the terror-stricken and semi-naked figure of Harriet Griffiths, its jade eye glowing and the green compartment throbbing. Just as she tried to beat back the swollen snake, Harriet Griffiths burst into flames. The snake then appeared to consume the fire with its mouth open wide and the noise and chanting rising to a crescendo. This was all too much for Anne Whitlock, and she fainted away. When the conductor entered the compartment at Whitley Holt a short time later, there was no sign of Mrs Griffiths, and Miss Whitlock was still unconscious. All that remained of Harriet Griffiths was a dark, ashen stain on the seat where she had sat, and the snake pendant, once more its normal size, lying on the floor. Eventually, the police were called. They were baffled from the very beginning, and were still baffled three months later. Desperate and despairing, Horatio Griffiths was ready to look anywhere for answers. If the natural world could not resolve the mystery of his missing wife, then, perhaps, the supernatural world could. These were his thoughts when, one day, he was contacted by the editor of Supramundane Quarterly. They offered to help, and a seance was arranged. The small station of Nether Grinley was almost deserted. A stiff breeze skittered along its platform, making the large station clock creak upon its bolts. Sissy Jenkins checked the time with a shiver. 
Horatio Griffiths was late, and their train was imminent. I am here, a figure declared, suddenly appearing from over her shoulder. He had hurried in by a side gate. I take it you are Miss Jenkins from the magazine. The man was breathless, and although his complexion was tanned, it had the pale cast of someone who had not slept for many nights. Mr Griffiths, Sissy confirmed. Horatio will do, he said, then also glanced at the clock above them. Yes, well, please call me Sissy, she told him, and yes, I am from Supermundane Quarterly, and on behalf of the magazine, I'd like to offer our condolences on the loss of your wife, and, of course, our appreciation of your agreeing to this gathering. I nearly didn't come, he told her, but, well, Horatio Griffiths couldn't find the words and so offered a shrug. I understand. This cannot be easy for you, she smiled softly. Let me assure you that whatever might occur, myself and the magazine shall be sensitive and respectful in our coverage. I suppose you'd go ahead with this even if I hadn't come. Even if you didn't have this thing, Griffiths patted his coat pocket. The magazine has sought to bring together two of the most renowned names in clairvoyance and the supernatural, Sissy offered. Norma Greenwood is perhaps the most esteemed psychic working today. She trained with Madame Boucher-Montret of Paris, and Mr Macarius is... Late, Griffiths said, pointing at the station clock. In the distance came the sound of their approaching train. I'm sure he will be here. As Sissy spoke, a figure appeared at the entrance to the platform. An old man with a dark greatcoat and a walking stick. It was Haskell J. McCarris. Sissy was a little surprised at how old the gentleman looked. He sported large sideburns, which were completely white, when once they had been coal black. In her mind, McCarris was still only in middle age, and something of an avuncular figure for her. She had to remind herself that this impression was based on what she had read of his exploits from 20 years before, in magazines when she was a girl. By now, Haskell J. McCarris was in his 70s and all but retired. He waved his stick in acknowledgement and walked toward the pair with a firm stride, just as the train was pulling into the station. Haskell J. McCarris, he said, introducing himself with a nod of his head. My sincerest apologies for my late arrival. A slight issue with my stick. He tapped the dark wooden cane on the ground. These things have to be right, don't they? Of course, Sissy smiled introducing Horatio and herself. My condolences, McCarris said, bowing slightly at Griffiths. And what exactly are you? Griffiths asked him. Greenwood is the psychic, Miss Jenkins is the journalist, and I'm the grieving widow, but I'm not entirely clear on your role. McCarris thought, with both hands atop his stick. Well, there was a time, Mr Griffiths, when I was referred to as a paranormal scrutineer. Sissy jumped in. Mr. McCarris is here simply as a neutral observer. He is an expert in the realms of the supernatural and the paranormal, and his presence is most welcomed by the editors of Supramundane Quarterly. Horatio Griffiths appeared satisfied at this and gave another shrug of resignation. Sissy turned to McCarris. You've had dealings on this particular line before, have you not, sir? Call me Haskell, he insisted. Yes, it was around 20 years ago when I first had cause to be acquainted with this line. On that occasion, it was for the phenomenon of a cryptid known as the Magpie Man. Once again, it would seem, strange forces are loose here. Griffiths gazed at the train that had hissed and puffed to a stop beside them on the platform of Nether Grinley. You might call it strange forces, he said gloomily, 
and others might call it the work of the devil, or perhaps even, it's nothing more than a human horror of some kind. All I want to know is, what has happened to my Harriet? Then, let us board the train. Haskell turned and pointed his walking stick down the line, beyond the station to where the rails met the darkness, and retrace the journey of your wife, so that we might find an answer to your question. He offered Griffiths a comforting hand on his shoulder. On board there were very few passengers on the last train of the evening. Its next stop was the end of the line at Whitley Holt. The corridor was warm and had the aroma of polished wood and old upholstery. Sissy led the group and found their compartment a little way down the first-class carriage. The blind had been drawn over its window. This is it, she told the others, and tapped lightly on the glass. From within, a male voice responded. Enter! The three of them went in. An elderly woman in a white gown and a white turban was sat upon the deep red fustian fabric of the carriage seat, whilst a shabby-suited middle-aged man stood with a solemn look. He closed his eyes. May I introduce, he said ceremoniously, clasping both hands together at his chest, the clairvoyant mystic and sibyl of the spiritual, Norma Greenwood. Norma's pale face held a sombre gaze. I have been on this train since its journey began, meditating and allowing the energies without to harmonise with my spirit within. I am ready. I need only a moment more to synchronise with you so that I may raise your frequencies to a higher sphere. You will not feel this. It is an ancient process known to only the great mystics. Be seated, she told the new arrivals. Her companion gestured for the others to sit. Miss Greenwood, he told them, is one of the Empire's most benevolent practitioners and studied under the aegis of Madame Boucher-Montret of Paris. And what is your name, sir? Macaris asked, taking his seat nearest to the door of the compartment. Next to him was Griffiths, and by the window, Sissy. I am Miss Greenwood's assistant. My name is Buxton, Joseph Buxton. I take care of all Miss Greenwood's secular needs, so that she may devote herself entirely to the metaphysical. You can leave us now, Joseph, Norma told him then. Go back to your carriage and make sure that all my luggage is collected precisely this time and see to it that the porter places my things carefully upon the barrow at our destination. It is not to be flung onto the platform, do you see? Of course, Miss Greenwood, he responded. He wished the others good evening and left, turning in the direction of the standard carriages. From outside, a whistle sounded and the engine began to snort and strain as the train slowly pulled out of Nether Grinley. Sissy had retrieved a leather-bound notebook from her satchel. Miss Greenwood, she asked, do you have any expectations for tonight's seance? Have you ever performed such a thing on a train before? Every seance is different, Greenwood told her with a flourish of her hands. Whether it takes place around a dinner table or on a train, one cannot predict what spirits will arise. Last year, I performed a seance on the RMS Mauritania for the Blausteins of Massachusetts. An ocean liner, yes, but a train, no, never. Look, said Griffiths before Sissy could ask another question. 
I don't care for exoticism, and I don't care for explorations into the nature of spirits and whatnot. I've travelled the world selling artefacts of antiquity of one sort or another for a good many years, and I've seen the basic nature of mankind, both savage and civilised so-called. Let me tell you, I can understand why you'd want to dive headfirst into all this mumbo-jumbo, but I'm a businessman, and what I'm buying this evening is the answer to a simple question. What happened to my wife in this carriage on December the 26th? I don't care how you arrive at the answer, but that's the answer I want. With that, Horatio Griffiths reached inside his coat pocket and retrieved the snake pendant. He held it out for Norma Greenwood and the others to see. This is what you need, isn't it? The pendant Harriet wore that night. The golden snake glistened. Its jade eye seemed to take in its surroundings and the four faces staring at it. Norma Greenwood leaned forward and took the pendant from Griffiths. It is very beautiful, said Sissy. It connects us to Harriet Griffiths, Norma declared, and the very night she disappeared. This trinket will allow me to form a link to her energy. Norma's eyes closed and she theatrically drew the snake to her forehead. That is no mere trinket, McCarris told the clairvoyant. You retrieved this pendant from Egypt, he asked Griffiths, more than likely from a tomb which had remained intact. Am I correct? Indeed, it is Egyptian, Griffiths confirmed. I have contacts from Cairo to Alexandria. This piece was part of a large trove of items. From the moment I saw it, I wanted to give it to Harriet. McCarris shook his head. That was an error, but I suppose, as a businessman, You've remained ignorant to the true nature of the artefacts which you trade. He clutched the head of his walking stick more tightly. And what do you mean by that, sir? That item is no pendant or trinket. It is part of a ceremonial headpiece that would have been worn by a priest. It represents a mysterious and little understood deity, a god known as Aposepa, from the Old Kingdom. Aposepa embodied chaos, disorder and destruction. Sissy hurriedly wrote down Macaris's words. But what would cause this headpiece to become activated in the way it did? She asked. Isn't it thousands of years old? Before Macaris could answer, Norma Greenwood suddenly made a terrible gargling sound and became rigid in her seat. Oh, we must begin, she cried. The energy has gathered and it is pregnant with a yearning to speak. I feel it, Mr Griffiths. Your wife's essence is still here. Harriet, Griffiths called out. You must listen to my instructions, all of you. Norma held the pendant above her head. I would advise that we go no further in this business, McCarris told them all. And I ask that we go on, said Griffiths indignantly. I need answers. You must all hold hands, Greenwood told them, ignoring McCarris's concerns. Griffiths grabbed hold of McCarris's hand. Do not say another word, he warned him. Then, more gently, he took hold of Sissy's hand. Sissy realised her heart had started beating at a tumultuous rate. She looked out of the window to try and get a sense of where they were, to ground herself in the knowledge that the world still existed outside of the cramped compartment. But it was no use. Outside it was only darkness. Inside the atmosphere had thickened. Yes! cried Norma Greenwood excitedly. I can feel it. The veil between worlds begins to quiver. I feel something, Sissy confirmed. My Harriet! Griffiths called out once more. Norma Greenwood slouched in her seat as if suddenly exhausted, her eyes rolling back in her head. 
Her body began to shudder with the rhythm of the train, the Apasepa headpiece still in her hand. The carriage swayed with its indefatigable pulse and the clairvoyant groaned in a kind of growl which harmonised with the noise of the train. Ah! Madame Greenwood? Sissy asked, her hand now clutched tighter around the sweaty palm of Horatio Griffiths. Are you quite all right? Norma Greenwood did not respond with words, only another shrieking cry. Ah! Then her eyes reopened. He is here, she told them. Sissy thought she saw the golden snake twitch in the hand of the clairvoyant. She turned to her two companions. Griffiths' eyes were closed as if in prayer, but McCarris looked directly at Sissy and nodded to confirm he had seen it too. It is this line, he said. There is a convergence of energies along it, and this rail line acts like a lens of magnification. The noise of the train changed then. It grew louder and transformed as if a pulse of electricity had been sent through the entire length of the locomotive. The combination of this headpiece and this train line is a terrible misfortune, McCarris finished, shouting over the sonic chaos. He is here, Norma Greenwood squawked again. Where is my wife, demanded Griffiths, eyes wide open. He stood and let go of Sissy and McCarris's hands. A throb of energy immediately pushed him back into his seat and the entire compartment became drenched in a virescent light. Norma Greenwood's white dress and turban looked as if she had bathed in slime and a look of terror had fixed itself upon her pale face. The snake was growing in her hand. As the snake grew, it coiled itself about her arm, its jade eye glistening. My time is coming once again, Norma spoke, though it was not her voice. It was a voice gruff with age and yet ageless, empty and without pity. The head and body of the snake continued to grow until it gyred about the clairvoyant's throat and head. Apasepa! It was Macaris who stood now. You are not welcome in this world. You must leave and return to your own realm. The snake blinked its jade eyes and a giant tongue licked the air. My time is coming once again, it said, in a tidal wave darkened by blood and slaughter, and all benevolence shall be drowned in my resurrection. Your civilization shall come undone. In a slash of the snake's tongue, McCarris was thrown to the other side of the compartment. Both Sissy Jenkins and Horatio Griffiths cried out, and the compartment shuddered with the hiss of the snake's breath. The snake grew until Norma Greenwood could almost not be seen. Somehow, she managed to pull an arm free of the reptilian coils and her hand desperately grasped the trouser leg of Griffiths. But Griffiths was frozen in fear. A great darkness is coming, the inhuman voice spoke again. And then the body of Norma Greenwood burst into squealing flames of glaring green. The snake began to suck the fire into its vast open mouth. McCarris had pulled himself up and was sat upon the floor of the compartment. He reached for his walking stick, grasping hold of it along the shaft and holding it up toward the snake. The creature's tail now began to coil around Sissy's leg. Help us! Sissy screamed and then noticed for the first time what was fixed on top of McCarris's walking stick. It was the head of a falcon, made from what appeared to be a black stone of some kind and the eyes were two red gems. 
As Macaris held the stick toward Apaseper, the gems began to glow, and two beams of red light shot toward the snake with an enormous crackle of energy. Griffiths tried to make his escape and leapt from his seat toward the compartment's door, knocking Macaris over as he did so. The beam disappeared as Macaris dropped his walking stick. You bloody fool, Macaris said, shouting at Griffiths, who in turn tripped over his legs. The snake had recovered and raised itself up, its entire body now twisting about the compartment. With its mandible stretched as wide as it could go, the snake lunged down upon Sissy, and her head and torso disappeared into the mouth of the snake. We're done for, Griffiths said, grasping hold of Macaris's coat. Pass me my stick, man, Macaris demanded. We can still save Miss Jenkins. Griffiths did as he was told. With the walking stick back in his hands, Macaris once more pointed it toward the snake. Griffiths heard him mutter some sort of incantation, and the two red beams of light shot from the eyes of the falcon again and blasted toward the snake. Help me hold it steady, Macaris cried. The two men clasped hold of the stick with both their hands and kept the beams pointed on their target. Just as the snake had grown, so too the head of the falcon began to enlarge in size, growing bigger and bigger. More of Sissy had disappeared into the moor of Apasapa. Only her legs remained, and they kicked and kicked and tried to resist the reptile god. A burning smell was beginning to fill the compartment as some of the snake's golden scales blackened under the falcon's beam of energy. What the hell is happening? Griffiths screamed. It appears that you have revived the eternal eschaton of the infinite demiurge, something which threatens the very fabric of our world, Macaris told him. Bloody hell, said Griffiths, stunned by his own blunder. It's what the Bible had in mind when it speaks of Armageddon, Macaris shouted. It's incredible to be a part of it, but also terrifying. Before Griffiths could respond, everything turned red, and the green was vanquished in an instant. Everything became red, bright as blood, and as glowing as a blood-red sun on a summer's day. Everything else disappeared in a silent explosion of nothingness. The small station of Nether Grinley was almost deserted. A stiff breeze skittered along its platform, making the large station clock creak upon its bolts. Three figures stood on the platform, looking up at the clock, then they looked at one another. Have we died? Sissy asked. How did we get back here? Griffiths asked. Was I dreaming? In the distance, a train could be heard approaching the station. It was the last train to Whitley Holt, and on which Norma Greenwood was waiting with her assistant, Joseph Buxton. We have not died, McCarris told them. Time, it would seem, has been reset. What the hell do you mean? What's happened to that bloody snake? And how did we get back here? Griffiths asked again. Let me see your stick, Sissy said, taking hold of it from McCarris. At its top was the head of a falcon. The bird is part of a ceremonial headpiece, McCarris told them. It would have been used by a priest in the old kingdom of Egypt. It is the figure of Hecnum Ra, an ancient god of order, creation and time. The direct opposite of Apasapa. So, on the train just a moment ago, this bird defeated Apasapa and we didn't get sucked into the giant snake, Sissy asked. You had Hecnum Ra because you knew what would happen. McCarris smiled. Well, I wasn't absolutely sure what was going to take place, but after you invited me to this seance, I certainly did my research. When I saw a photograph of the pendant in the Daily Gazette, 
I realized what it was and, of course, I was already familiar with the potent energies associated with this line. McKerris looked at his walking stick. I have an old acquaintance who works at the British Museum. He was able to loan me the Hecknam Ra headpiece and I simply attached it to an old cane. I thought it might be the best way to transport it, less obvious. That's quite impressive, Mr McKerris, Sissy said with awe. But how did we get back here? Griffiths asked for the third time. I'm not entirely certain of that, McKerris admitted. As a deity, Hecknam Ra was intimately connected with the passage and flow of time. I suspect this victory over Apasapa has instigated some sort of resetting of time in its most immediate sense. It has brought us back to the place and moment where the three of us met. That is all I can confidently conclude, at least until I give the situation further reflection and study. Then why can't it take me back to the night I said goodbye to Harriet? Griffiths said bitterly. Why can I not go back there and save her from this damned rotten thing? He pulled the pendant from his pocket. The small jade eye of the snake looked at him as he held it in his hand. I'm sorry, McCarris told him. My Harriet is still gone, gone forever. McCarris put his hand on the man's shoulder. She is at rest. Apasapa can do no more harm to her now. I cannot bear to hold this cursed thing anymore. The train was coming into the station. Griffiths went to the edge of the platform and dropped the pendant onto the rail. A moment later, the heavy iron wheels of the locomotive crushed the snake to pieces, then came to a stop. Some people got off, but no one else boarded the train. After a few minutes, just as the guard was about to blow his whistle, a first-class compartment window was slid open, and Joseph Buxton stuck his head out. Are you three not here for the seance? he asked them. We were here for the seance, Sissy told him. But I don't think it's going to happen now. I'm very sorry, she smiled. Buxton stared at them, perplexed. But it has all been arranged. This is terribly inconsiderate. Listen, you little toad, Griffiths told him. We've decided to cancel. We don't need a seance. Mrs Greenwood can thank us another time that she won't be swallowed by an Egyptian god. I don't follow, Buxton frowned. Mrs Greenwood is one of the Empire's greatest mediums. The train began to pull away. We know, Haskell J. McCarris waved. She studied under Madame Boucher-Montret of Paris. Goodbye, Mr. Buxton. Buxton's confused face continued to stare at the three of them until he and the train disappeared into the darkness. Seance on a Train was written and narrated by Richard Daniels. It was a Pylon Phaser production. For more information, go to occulteriofalbion.com. As Yet Unexplained podcast, written, performed, scored and produced by Wesley Smith. We will be looking at some of the most famous and mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal, and unexplained. If you are interested in the paranormal, then this podcast is for you. This show will delve into cases of UFOs, hauntings, folklore, murder, ghosts, 
historical mysteries and things that simply cannot be explained. Please consider liking, subscribing, sharing and even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. As yet, unexplained.